my whole family has a really strong work ethic. I know. I remember how hard everyone worked. Um, my my bedroom as a teenager was the corridor to my dad's office. I think the first issue was that yes, lots of people have a good playbook, but if they've done it in a different way or a different company, then they need to re-engineer quite a lot of the way your company works to fit their playbook. Where did your career begin? So I went to Aberystwyth and did software engineering in 1997, but I think before that I've had two, had two self-employed parents. Peter Gradwell is a technology entrepreneur, somebody who I've observed from afar because we both started our internet businesses in the late 90s about the same time and somebody I learned a lot from just by watching what he was doing. In this episode, you'll hear from Peter how his entrepreneurial parents inspired him and produced a great work ethic that he's taken into his career and some of the obstacles he's overcome from growing a large business, hiring uh, management teams, working with external investors and always managing that cash flow right through to stepping away from the business he founded and the business that still carries his name. My name is Richard Osborne and this is Drive, a small business podcast from UKBF. Peter, good to meet you and uh, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast here. The you're um, you're someone I've been aware of and known of uh, from right towards sort of back end nineties as somebody who has always been an innovator and at the forefront of technology, uh, particularly around the internet and telecoms. Uh, so it's really great to have the opportunity to chat to you. What inspired you right at the early sort of stages, really, to take that step? Where did your sort of in fact, where did your career begin? So I went to Aberystwyth and did software engineering in 1997. But I think before that, I've had two, had two self-employed parents. Uh, my dad was a early database designer. My mum was a physiotherapist and had a clinic. So kind of working for yourself was always the natural mode. So I had a few kind of sixth form, you know, side businesses. Um, but um, then, then when I was at university, I got into websites and website design and I had a industrial graduate placement with a big IT services company called Logica um, where I worked in the city of London in 1999 um, writing software for Orange, the original mobile phone company um, and I discovered I hated all that um, and working for that and that the project, maybe we'll get into that later, was particularly pointless uh, in my opinion. So. Um, so I kind of thought, well, it's no fun doing sitting on the treadmill for other people. I, I want to go off and run my own businesses. Um, okay. So when you uh, you just mentioned there, you had a couple of side projects through sixth form. What sort of shape did those take? The what sort of shape did they take? I mean, I think I was. I think the first one was creating business cards for people um, and printing things because we had a printer. Um, yeah, and then quite quickly, quite quickly, I got into writing software for people um, and websites and things like that. So. so you really, right at the very beginning, at that point, even whilst you're doing your studies, you was always, uh, you was already running some, you know, effectively running your own business, even though it may have been what today we'd call a side side hustle. Uh, you already had that um, in you. Yeah, well, I've always thought it was a good way to earn money, right? Um, was to sell products and um, to pay, you know, for whatever it was I needed to, or wanted to do. 
So uh, I've always liked the, the, I've never been a good consultant. I don't like being paid per hour for my time. I like being paid for delivering a product because then you get the leverage and you can, if you get it right, you can sell more products in the right hours of the day. And that's a good way for you to make a bit more money. So when you're talking about um, at that point, if I, you, you mentioned your, um, both your parents were self-employed and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I picked up from that is that both your parents were, um, their businesses were their time in that way they were selling their time. Uh, is that correct? And is that, could that sort of lead from where your sort of thoughts around having a product to sell comes in? Yeah, it's probably a good one of those, you know, sort of things that you don't think about at the time, but actually it's something that left an impression on you. Um, but we, my the whole family has a really strong work ethic. I know, I remember how hard everyone worked. Um, my my bedroom when I was a teenager was the corridor to my dad's office. So I kind of always knew when he'd turn the light out to go, go to sleep. Um, so that kind of working hard and delivering for customers is always really important for us. But yes, you're probably right. I think, um, yeah. You could see how hard it took, how hard everyone had to work to to kind of earn enough money and things, and so therefore, yeah, that idea of of productizing things and creating leverage, I think, was definitely a good, something that obviously came to me. Um, I thought I don't want to do that again. I want to try and make it bigger than that. And um, uh, this is something I've heard previously. When I think back to a previous guest, uh, a gentleman called Dwayne Jackson, who founded Cashflow, an accounting platform. It was exactly what you're talking about. It's exactly the same as what he's mentioned in the past. And one which some people might miss is he his original business key one was doing software development, web, and particularly website design. And he found himself uh, in a situation where he was like, if I can build something that I can resell over and over again, um, that takes away the limitation of, you know, we've all got a finite amount of time available unless we give up sleep but even giving up sleep you've only got so much time available if you can find a way of commoditizing what you sell you then have that opportunity to resell it over and over again and that's what i'm picking up from yourself here mm. i i remember doing the maths in university thinking well obviously i've got to do my course so then i've got the number of holidays you get loads of holidays in university right so so i was like I've got this many days in these holidays you know this many hours like you said don't need to sleep too much so it's maybe I could do 12 hours a day and then this is my hourly rate and so therefore in this Easter holiday I could earn what four thousand pounds that's yeah I mean that was a lot of money for a student in 1997 but it still wasn't enough in the grand scheme of things so uh, it was a question of yeah how do you break through that and how do you kind of turn that into something where you're not constrained yeah you mentioned then that you went on and worked for um uh Telefonica did you Logica Logica sorry and um, started building a system there, which um, it became redundant. Uh, so w- what was happening there and what did that show you? Yeah, so I was really lucky. I mean, Logica was one of the top IT consultancies and I had a graduate software developer job um, on grade one of the, 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 the ladder. And I was then, we were writing a system in, for Orange. So <clears throat> Orange had just launched their prepaid product, Just Talk, and... <clears throat> they had a problem with their Infomix database so that if the database crashed, when you rang up the call centre in Darlington to activate your new prepaid SIM, they couldn't put the credit onto your account. So that we wrote them a system where they could kind of alt-tab, change the screen, go onto our system. It looked and felt exactly the same, but actually 
although it would activate the SIM on the network so you could make your calls and texts, it wouldn't do the billing. And then they would print out a piece of paper down in uh, the Bristol office. And then overnight, when they had spare capacity, the team in Bristol would type it back in and they'd fix the database. The team in Bristol would type the billing information back in and you'd get your credit online. And um, this was, I mean, it, it was just completely eye-opening because one is uh, Logica charged Orange an enormous amount of money to do this. And I got a very small amount of that, of course. But then um, the, the problem with the system was that you could have spent that money on either A, fixing the database so you didn't have the problem in the first place, or B, the fact is we were kind of writing a carbon copy notepad. It was just a posh version. So we could have kind of, you know, that would, giving every call center agent a notepad and a fax machine would have been a lot cheaper and achieved the same effort. And then um, to kind of add insult to injury, by the time we finished this project, Orange then changed the business logic and rewrote something else. So they candled my year's worth of work. Um, and I just thought this is ridiculous. You know, A, the thing I did was pointless in the first place and B, they just you know, binned it. Um, so I don't want to do that again. But that's where, uh, is it about that time your I, your first idea came along to start your first, I would say, proper main business? Would that be right? Yeah, the proper company. Yeah, so that's, uh, that was the start of a company called Gradle.com. And yeah, it was 1999 and the internet boom was kind of taking off nicely. And there's all lots of exciting meetings and things happening in London about all that. And I could see all this stuff going on. And I had been, obviously, as I said, writing web pages at university. So I knew a bit about domains. And I knew that we were sending loads of money overseas to American companies um, who allegedly were hosting their servers. And I'm not quite sure that there was, you know, there was much more than a computer in a garage that we were paying for. So I thought, well, I could get one of these computers and I could put it in the garage um, and get an internet connection. And that's what we did. Um, and then we started selling domain names for people, you know, like the web address, www.bbc.kdk or whatever. And so, um, yeah, and so we started doing that. And then we sold lots of them because there was, you know, huge amounts of people buying these domain names and um, starting to get online and getting their first web presence. And then along with the domain name, we sold the website hosting package, which was £10 a month and a recurring subscription. And I think I needed 10 customers to agree to pay me £10 a month to buy the server and pay for the ongoing operating costs for the year. And that was sort of the baseline. And once I got that sorted, off we went. Um, and that was the start, as you say, of gravel.com. Yeah, and we started um, about the same sort of time in sort of the hosting platform because it was 1998, 1999 when I started my um, web hosting and domain uh, business as well. So we're both sort of starting off about that time. And the I remember it was a bit like the Wild West in many regards with a lot of uh, what were called bedroom ISPs at the time. For me personally, I had a website called Nice Names. And at that time, uh, I'd managed to get an online card payment process, in um, not by today's standards. Um, it, it wasn't to the level you'd expect for handing card payments by today. I think I'll just stop at that and just say that's the, that was it. Uh, and people were buying domain names speculatively as well. Uh, and it, for me personally, it was, like, it, was, it was like printing money. And then exactly as you just say, you'd pay for it. You'd have a server. It wasn't in the garage. For me, I had a one server sat in a place called Telehouse in, uh, down Docklands. Uh, I rented a little one U or two U, I think it was, a bit of rack space. Um, and I had everything running on that one server. 
people's hosting, the DNS, the email, all running on one piece of kit. Um, you just can't even imagine that today. And the um, it was a really um, sort of interesting time. Uh, but um, for me, getting the card payment was a nightmare and that came with its own issues as well. But you went one step beyond that, which I was really jealous of. So the talk us through how gradwell.com evolved and really sort of, sort of took off. Yeah, and this is a really interesting yeah, story about um, yeah, collecting money and cash flow and all that So So before card payments, um, obviously people sent us checks um, uh, because this was very much to the check-based society and particularly in business. So we, so we had checks and one of the, I remember one of the, one of the ways the, the way the market works at that time was that you, you got your customer to pay and you registered the domain name and then you had a period of 30 days before you had to pay your wholesaler. Um, and if you didn't want it at the end of the 30 day period, you could cancel it. So you didn't get a bill. It's a loophole that they think they're brought up now. But anyway, so we had the whole, we had the opportunity for customers to go online, buy the thing, but then send us a check. And I, the first, uh, memory I have of that was, like I said, I came home from my job at Logicon, um, one Friday evening and sat down and started reconciling checks and kind of carried on reconciling checks until I had to go back to work on Monday morning. Um, and all these checks were for £10 each. So although there were lots of them, it was you know, not big amounts of money. And um, I just thought, this is ridiculous. Um, got to be a better way of doing this. And then obviously, it's an, it's the thing about subscription-based economy is that every month, you know, you are ideally increasing the amount of customers you have exponentially because each new one goes on. So the prospect of having an exponentially increasing part of checks was not going to work for me. So I think I said I needed to have direct debit because that's the right way to collect money for subscriptions. At this point, I was back in Aberystwyth. I went down to see uh, NatWest Bank, my bank twin, um, and the bank manager in NatWest in Aberystwyth, uh, which at the time had a business centre, um, looked at me and kind of didn't really understand what this uh, computer science student was doing and why he needed this thing. So the thing you have to remember about direct debit is it's an unlimited liability for the bank because I can charge you a million quid on your direct debit and you have the right to go back into the branch the next day and they will give you an immediate no questions asked refund. Of course, at that point, I've probably taken the million quid and run off the Cayman Islands. So the bank is losing. Um, so there's a big confidence issue for a bank to get over on that, especially if you're 19 years old. And so, um, and the man I remember he said to me, well, in my portfolio in Aberystwyth, um, there's 500 farmers and kind of 500 tea shops and I'm retiring next year. So I didn't really want to rock the boat at this point. Um, but, um, you know, you've asked me for this very complicated thing. And I said, so the one thing is I have been at NatWest Bank for 50 years. I have been, you know, writing credit and assessing risk on the bank's behalf for 50 years. So I can, if you come back with your CV and you polish your shoes a bit more and, um, you know, set out your business plan and explain why you want to do that, come back next week and, um, yeah, anyway, the long and the short of it is that um, I got signed off. Um, they sent me the piece of cardboard that they send everyone, which says, we're the clearing banks of the United Kingdom, and you agree to identify us, full stop. Um, and I thought, what the hell, nothing to lose here. So I signed that, and as you say, then eventually we got um, got through. And that was probably the last bit of good old-fashioned banking I've ever had. But um, but it worked, and it helped us, and off we went. Yeah, and we could do electronic payments. The um, And that was really... Um sort of game changing for you where I, I didn't have that facility. I had uh, card payments um, working with an, another organization. And the, um, but then one thing that really hit me, I don't know whether you had a similar, because I was 
I had a large customer base who was speculatively buying domain names. An event happened around about 2000, I think it was, where somebody, I don't know whether it was Coca-Cola or somebody, sued to get their domain name back based on trademark. And then I had an absolute flood of chargebacks where money was basically being ripped out of the bank. And that, from a business perspective and the sort of the way the world should be, stabilised domain names and got rid of people buying um, all the, these like trademark infringing domain names. Um, did you did that impact your business at all? I don't I don't recall having kind of massive problems with fraud and chargebacks. I do later on we have problems with credit card fraud um, and things like that. But I think maybe because we had a we had a balanced payment portfolio, we helped. Um, and um, yeah, and, and maybe that, yeah. So we didn't have we didn't have that sort of immediate cash flow problem. I do remember it was challenging, kind of getting credit for these online businesses. And um, we worked with Clydesdale then because I think uh, someone I knew worked out that they were the soft touch in the industry, as it were. They were most flexible um, for card acquiring. And the net result of that was that Clydesdale was owned by National Bank of Australia. Head of risk in National Bank of Australia realised that you know his figures had gone through the roof and there was something going on there. And my associate was summoned to London where this bloke had flown in from Sydney um, and had to explain the whole thing. Um, so it was a bit touch and go, but um, luckily, luckily I didn't have too many credit problems back in the early days. So. Yeah, and that's where I was just about to allude to really or, or come to is we. Um, Comparing sort of what your business as it was then to what mine was at the time, the I would say you had a much more stable business where you was providing a rounded service. Sort of you register your domain name, you have your hosting, you have your email, and that it, and you were sort of servicing businesses that had that need. Um, for me, um, the mistake I made at that time was to to coin a phrase: I identified a quick buck. But that came with a risk that I didn't foresee in that although I could do the hosting, the email, I did have some small number of business clients that I was doing websites for. Um, I literally set up a dedicated website for people to buy speculative domain names, nice names as it was at the time, because loads of people were registering these domain names. So I thought, let's get on that wave. But what happened to me was um, with any quick buck, there's never... if. There never really is a free lunch, um, and um, the it almost sunk my business at that time. Yeah, I've always, rightly or wrongly, I've always been a little bit sceptical of those sorts of opportunities. Um, I got into voice later, and lots of people tried to buy O nine hundred premium numbers from us, and we never did that because although the margin was fantastic, it was felt a little bit nervous about the risk. So I suppose I've always liked a business model which is flat and wide with many, 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 many thousands of customers spending a little bit of money so that if something goes wrong and you piss a few off, then, um, you know, the business is still safe. And that became quite important as we started growing, employing people, all the rest of it. At least we could always be comfortable. Yeah. So how did, um, so you had this flat and wide, you had this stable business with a broad range of customers. You was building up a subscription model. You had direct debit facilities in place that were facilitating and automating that as uh, you can see so how did uh, gradwell.com evolve and be, you know what were the next few years like for you yeah so i mean they were quite busy i finished my um university degree and things i think actually i ended up 
divesting that kind of my brand was called click names that did go off to a, a company called onyx up in middlesbrough but um but then uh, as you say life moves on i ended up uh, in bath where i am now and um <clears throat> still doing websites and still doing website hosting because that was the kind of core profitable bit of the business and at that point um we wanted to offer telephone support and i had a friend he lived in Leeds and a friend who lived in Tunbridge Wells and we wanted a bath phone number so they could answer but the phone would route to them and at that point the only way you could do it this is now sort of 2004 I think you have BT you could have ISDM which was enormously expensive and um, then you would divert the call and the problem was that every time you received the call in and you diverted it out you tied up two lines on your ISDM system so you couldn't receive many phone calls um, so yeah so we just thought well i just thought there's got to be a my friend ben is there not a better way we can do this and i think the other thing that happened at that time was we're starting to get broadband so we kind of you know i stand a 64k channel suddenly we had a 512k channel so we thought well we could fit a voice call down this internet connection <clears throat> somehow and so we had to go and um that kind of worked uh, a bit. Um, it wasn't the most quality call and everything, but it did work. And so we ended up um, making this work. And then we built a web portal to allow people to manage the, the telephone numbers that they got from us and the phone calls and the telephone handsets and things. And we were able to go back and show that to the thousand odd customers that we had in the website hosting business. And um, they said, oh, that's great. We've got the same problems you have. We love that. And so that then resulted uh, in the launch of our kind of voice over IP and our, what you would now call it a cloud PBX, but our business phone system that ran over the internet for people. Um, and that was really the product that then had big growth. So that's what's, what I find fascinating about that is, as you just said, 2004. And I remember, I remember broadband. So at that time I was living in Luton and there was NTL um were just rolling out cable modems around Luton that area and it was changing business and for me I'd started to build a bit of a business uh, model up around earning revenue on the dial-up internet so people would dial up to a local rate phone number 0845 whatever it might be and then I would get a share of those revenue minutes and that funded a lot of internet companies at that time and and what I'm seeing as your business is evolving is you have your hosting, you're providing an internet service, but you're moving into a telecoms um, service that um, isn't impacted by the change of the internet, but is benefiting from the evolution of broadband as well, providing telecom services where you're building another revenue stream effectively on people, you know, where they use their calls. Uh, the, what, um, You've just talked through how you're in this situation, you've got a couple of people, you know, who you want to be able to answer calls as a business, which today, as we're talking now, is commonplace. Uh, talk me through sort of that period, that sort of research period of time. How do you even come up with an idea this sort of thing must be possible and this, uh, and we can build something and put a solution in place for it? It's a very good question. I'm, yeah, I mean, I... I naturally curious as to why things don't work and the way and, and naturally impatient about the fact that things don't work and the business process should be better um i think one of the things that i was well, i mentioned my dad was an early database design and kind of business process thing so a lot of my life has been 
looking at big flow charts or big entity relationship diagrams of different companies and all the information they have and the decomposition of that and going right well if you take that box there and you move it around a bit and you reorder it then life you know suddenly the process flow or the information flow that you've got there is is going to be smoother or more optimum so i've um yeah i've been nurtured to, to look at the world like that and to think about oh if we could do that, then wouldn't it be better? So I suppose this is a little bit of inventiveness. But um, I think, yeah, so I don't know why I sat there and thought that I should take on telephones, but I did. And, um, and yeah, and that's the, that's the, the result of it. And so, I, um, yeah, I just, I'm not, I'm not very good at dealing with these processes that are broken. I want to fix them. Um, and then that kind of, luckily, that helps other people, right? And other people think, oh, this is good. I want to buy that. And one of the other things which uh, I think is important we pick up on uh, with what you did during that time is you looked at your existing customer base uh, and uh, some people may use low hanging fruit or sort of the easy selling. It's much easier to um, have a new product to sell to your existing customers than it is to try and win more new customers for a new product. Was that intentional? Yeah, this a little bit. I mean, I'm certainly a fan of that bit of marketing mantra, um, you know, about getting an extra pound from existing customers. I think the other interesting thing, though, so there's an often argument between product people. Do you have the Steve Jobs approach of product, which is, you know, uh, or, or do you have the sort of consensus view where you go out and do? I, I don't, the problem I have with if you ask a thousand people what product is they want, they and they might not have the imagination that's necessary to see the next leap that is required and so they will create a better you know elephant or whatever it is that they talk about um and whereas you know uh, you can take the steve jobs approach which is i think the world needs a better iphone but no one's ever thought of an iphone before so um you make that quantum leap and then you go out and show people i'm sort of i'm slightly more towards the the steve jobs uh, end of it and <clears throat> then the net result of that is I'm quite happy to cannibalize what an existing market or to ask people what their business problem is or observe what their business problem is or try and observe what their problem is and then come back to them and say, had you thought about this solution? Um, rather than just sort of going, right, well, you've said A, B, C, D, and therefore what you need is E, often the answer is to jump to, you know, H or J. Um, and so that's kind of been important. Like I said, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the web pasting customers had this problem with customer support and service and things, and, and but they would never have made the never join the dot. So that's how we kind of got into voice over IP, and we've done that a few times in the gradual business. Um, we went from um, we went from the websites, the domain names, into voice over IP, um, and then we've kind of launched into broadband quite late in the day. But it was always a slight tweak on the existing market and trying to just trying to think. How are they, how's this going to help the customers and solve the business problem that they have? I love that. And um, I've, I have been criticised at times for taking, to use your analogy, taking a Steve Jobs approach. The, um, I, I do, I share that same view that sometimes if, if somebody's in a, a, a business owner or in a situation, they only see what their issue is and I love that analogy. They'll, um, if you ask them what they need, they'll say, a, as you just said, uh, a better elephant or um, um, a longer saw or whatever it might be, uh, because they see 
their existing solution and the problem and they just need a better what they have and the as said i've been criticized at times by going off on a tangent to try and create a completely off the wall situation uh, but um, there's been times where the solution that we've put out there like we have an advertising platform that generates revenue for people based on displaying adverts effectively within a startup journey uh, when I started designing that and building it to launch, our customers said I was wasting time, you know, fix this, make this better, don't build that. Now we pay out millions of pounds a year to our customers in revenue shares that um, is like revolutionizing their business. But well, one thing I found really hard as a running, so the gravel business grew eventually, we had 70 people. Um, I found it really hard then because then we had some product managers and uh, you know customer support managers and teams and all these, and they would come along and they said, "Well, we've spent all day talking to customers. And we've done this survey, and and you know these are the top ten things that we need to fix in the platform, and we prioritize them like this." And, and I, I and they were all very sensible people, and they had the right answer. That yeah, they had done their work very thoroughly, but I often felt that they sort of missed the point, and they weren't going to increase the business or the top line or you know expand the capability. And I would come back and I say, oh, but I've just spoken to this customer and, he's, and we should build this feature. And they said, but where's, you know, there's no evidence to that. You just have a chat, Peter. Um, so, and it was always very hard to balance the um, the thing. I think eventually we kind of ended up with some sort of truce where I would agree that they could spend so much of their time doing the, the obvious things that were, the customers obviously wanted. And then we would have an, an allocated amount of time um, where I would decide the things that we should do. Um, and kind of we keep the product innovation going effectively, I suppose. Um, you know. I think it's important for businesses to create that balance. Where do you draw the line, though, where if um, now clearly um, you and I were quite product driven in that sense, uh, the but there, there are times from personal experience, um, and I assume uh, you may have come across this yourself, where the you find yourself in a situation where you you're creating or coming up with a solution, but eventually it ends up with a solution looking for a problem because um, it's not been right or it's not worked. And where do you draw the line in those situations? Because we can't always get it right. Um, yeah, I mean, that there's a fail fast. Or to ask it slightly differently, how how do you identify if you're going down a rabbit hole that you perhaps should stop going down? I think you have to fail fast, right? And then that's back to having some reasonably good metrics about how much money you're earning from things and whether it is going to sell and how much money you've an effort you've put into it. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we tried to relaunch the web hosting business because the original web hosting business had then um, the voice of IP business had taken over and we'd left that languishing a bit. So we, we put a lot of time and money into rebuilding the web hosting business, but ultimately couldn't get it fly. And that was, probably a situation where we didn't let go fast enough um and we kind of yeah probably spent a few hundred thousand pounds too many at that point trying to get it to to reboot and it didn't so eventually we had to give up on it okay um so you're in telecoms you've rolled out a fresh new um hot off the press product uh, on a very early doors broadband platform the I can imagine it being quite a, because it's all, everything's very new, even the foundations it's running on, broadband, 
Um, must have been quite a sort of a bumpy start and journey. But how were the first sort of the short and medium term for that business or that part of the business? Well, the good bit was that the phone rang off the hook and people wanted to buy it. Um, the challenge was so my sales manager back then, Derek, um, you know, said that the problem with the VoIP phone was that the broadband wasn't reliable, so the phone calls would keep cutting out. And the people had hitherto been used to a 100% reliable phone service because it was you know, on the copper wire. So that was always the big objection. And um, I do remember the kind of a series of a year or so. So there's a German manufacturer called Snom that makes these really great quality phones. And, um, but the original Snom 90 and Snom 100, you know, were pretty early days. So Derek had one of those. It was the best at the time. Always has always, Snom always had a, a premium market position. But eventually he would ring me up and go, Peter, it's not working. I can't sell this stuff. Yeah, the phone calls. And I said, don't worry, Derek. The um the Snom two hundred is out. So let me give you a Snom two hundred. Another month would go by or whatever, six weeks, and he would say, Snom two hundred still rubbish. People keep losing sales because they keep losing the calls. So I said, Don't worry, don't the Snom three hundred is anyway, this this charade kind of carried on uh for long enough that um we got our act together in the core software and the Snom got their act together in terms of the audio stuff. Um and the broadband settled down so that the core the, the network latency was reliable enough eventually um sales team were able to sell big quantities of this product um and um yeah but i think it, it took it took a lot i mean derek and, and the rest of the sales team were always up for you know the fact that it was an early product and people wanted it and and so they always helped the customer to understand what they were getting into but um but it took us a while to get everything working um which inevitably ended up with some frustrated customers where they, you know, you always get someone that rings you up and go, I've just lost a million pound deal because your phone, you know, died on me. And I was like, well, I, was, you know, I have a lot of empathy for that, but ultimately I was only charging you eight pounds a month for the thing. So it's not, you know, it's not directly my responsibility that you've lost a million quid. The, uh, with such a sort of early doors product, uh, is there a defining moment where, uh, or a proud moment where you sat and thought, this is really like revolutionising. This is like, I, I've I've made a difference here. Yeah, there was um there was a couple yeah because we did a bit to get working um and there was a couple um so actually there was a company called Streetcar in London which was one of the early car rental on the you know you could go up and swipe cars and they used our phone service in the early days and they scaled enormously um. And that was really good. Yeah, I think they're now part of Zipcar and Enterprise, and you know, so uh, all around the country. But they were an early customer. And then we had an insurance business that was a startup um, in this grand office opposite Threadneedle Street, opposite the Bank of England. Um, and there, I do remember going to help plug it all in. And there was a hundred um, agents sat in this enormous big room with a hundred VoIP phones, um, all plugged into their CRM or something. And the way that worked, we couldn't have made that business work without having had a, you know, without the VoIP platform and without the kind of speed to market and stuff. And I did remember standing at the back of the room thinking, wow, there's a hundred people here that are working. And the reason they're working one is because, because they're using the phone system and that's enabling them to do something they couldn't have done before. So, um, so that was, that was great. It was, it's really nice. I love seeing actual customers use the service and you know, see it make a difference. So. The, it, I, it sounds like, um, and I'm sure it was like an amazing story of growth that uh, as you've sort of been in sort of the hosting side, you know, the internet service provision side of business, moving into telecoms. And we're talking like thousands of users here and sort of growing 
um, significantly. Uh, without a doubt, you would have hit growth pains um, during that period. What were those sort of growth pains that you sort of hit at that point, and what what did it mean for you and the business itself? I think, I mean, there were there were the sort of the usual categories of technical and people, probably, and money. Um, I think they so the first issue was that um, thinking about you know you said about having one server in telehouse. So I think we got to the point where we had 14 or 15 um, all running this work platform and it wasn't scaling well. And we knew we needed a big cluster and some new equipment and all the rest of it. So we, we priced up a couple of million dollars worth of HP servers, um, but we didn't have a couple of million dollars to spend on them. So then we went off to the bank and we also needed people and marketing and management and you know the whole thing kind of needed a bit of organization. So yeah, I do remember going off to the bank, they said, um, a your yeah a hard growth technology company with no balance sheet so we can't really lend in to you and b remember this is natwest bank and natwest bank at this point didn't have any money um so they said what you need is some venture capital so that took us into um raising a million pounds of venture capital um which was a whole big process um and eventually, I think after about six, nine months, we did a deal with a firm called Altitude Partners, um, where these two guys invested in us. And, um, and that was really great. One of the funny things was that we, like I said, so we I then went back to HP as part of the deal. And I said, got the investment now, got the money, you'd like to write your check, all the rest of it. And they said, Mr. Scrabble, you put your checkbook away. Um, we HP in our internal bank, HP Bank of Ireland, will now lend you the two million dollars that you need um, at a one percent interest rate um, over five years with an asset finance agreement, so you can have the servers that you need. And I remember thinking, you know, you miserable people, why didn't you do that last week? Um, because I've just like given away thirty percent of my company and you know, raised a million pounds of venture capital with all the effort and lawyers and their accountants and everything that involves. And they said, well, the problem was that last week you weren't bankable. <clears throat> but this week you're back with a venture capitalist and you've got equity um, and you're a good credit risk now. So, um, so we'll, yeah. So I, I ended the week 2 million pounds in debt rather than 1 million pounds in debt. But we got the infrastructure, <clears throat> then we got the people and that definitely helped. Although there was then the whole problem of finding the right people and kind of, growing and we definitely had a number of big bumps in the road in terms of trying to find senior managers so sales managers um, and kind of other operating people that was very difficult to find the right fit i think culturally picking uh sort of picking both those items up in turn here when we're talking about the finance you often hear um stories of people who have a business need money um but can't get access to that money and what you've just described there is fundamentally the business is the same. Your business hasn't changed from one week to the next. You're still providing the same product and service and you still have a need for this increase in infrastructure to provide and improve the business and the product going forward. Day one, um, in this case, you know, HP Bank, um, you couldn't get finance for the products but somebody, some investors come along, put a million pound in the business bank account, <clears throat> and now they will lend you that money, um, but the business hasn't changed in its fundamental offering and the profitability of the business 
Uh, it's a very um, unfortunate situation that um, some people may find themselves in and uh, like picking up from you, really frustrating. Uh, you can kind of put yourself on the other side of the fence and think, well, if it all goes to Pete Tong, we know there's a million quid sitting there that we can draw on. <laughs> yeah, and, and they've gone through due diligence and they've checked it out, right? And they've someone else has put a vote of confidence into you, so that all helps the, the bureaucrats. Who, yeah, but yes, it is. The, um, looking at the building up the team, uh, every business book you'll read, every business guru will always say, you know, build up a strong, good senior management team around you. Uh, being uh, Transitioning from the... Uh, being the one at the top, making all the decisions and doing everything, to then delegating that level of responsibility to some to people who won't have the same opinions or views as yourself, uh, will do things differently for right or wrong, whichever way it is. Um, that um, how much um, of the challenges uh, could be down to just they are different, and how many of uh, in that whether it be conflicts or just um difficulty from yourself uh to literally just downright just the wrong people yeah building a team is really hard it's got to be one of the, the most difficult thing in building the company i reckon um and we had gone from a situation where we had fundamentally grown organically with people and everyone had grown up through the company that started junior and ended up senior to now a situation where we kind of wanted to put the growth on on uh, accelerates and we'll put the growth on storage <clears throat> and we wanted to have people you know let's call them professionals who had done this before and we wanted to take their playbook and run that and so um and i think the first issue was that yes lots of people have a good playbook but if they've done it in a different way or a different company then they need to re-engineer quite a lot of the way your company works to fit their playbook and that's quite painful. And actually, if it doesn't work out, um, for some reason, like you said, whether they're bad people or or the product's not going to work in their play. But right, one of the things about our business was it was a large number of people spending a very small amount of money. So it's quite a retail-focused thing. So if you get someone that's quite good at enterprise sales, then the ticket price wasn't high enough. So to the amount of effort you have to put into selling doesn't add up to the number of products, right? So the economics doesn't work. So, so we had a lot of problems with that sort of thing where we get people that were good salespeople, but they were the wrong sort of salespeople. And I do remember one really difficult decision we had. Um, we had a really great sales marketing uh, lady, director, and she, in my mind now, when I look back at it, she was going down the right path in terms of understanding why customers were and were not buying and why were they churning and what sort of stuff. And she had some really good details, very analytical. Um, and was very good at building model. But she was taking forever about it. Um, and ultimately, um, well, we all got a bit fed up and the investors particularly got fed up and said it wasn't working. So um, unfortunately, she had to leave. But, um, but I, now, yeah, I sort of, that was one of the situations where I was a bit on the fence um, because I thought, actually, we're almost doing the right thing, but not quite at the right speed or in the right way. Um, and, and now we've got to cut this off and we've got to start again. And it's the problem with like hiring people, right? It takes you six months to find them. Then it takes a year for them to figure out whether they're good or not. And then it takes another six months to replace them. So you've lost two years and a huge amount of money and time and energy and all the people around you are demoralized. Um, and so, so we had the problem with, um, with that lady. And then, 
actually then uh, after five or so years, we exited altitude and we did a second round of private equity investment. And um, a part of that process was that I wasn't going to be CEO anymore. So we transitioned me being CEO to CTO and um, this other guy came in and he and I actually didn't gel in the end. Um, and that kind of caused a lot of friction. And so um, that was quite tricky just in the end. Uh, yeah, he left again. But um, I just, it was it was a really, if you've got two people at the top of the organisation that aren't working together, then that impacts on everybody. Um, and so kind of there the was you know, a couple of wilderness years almost as we tried to, you know, sort out the investors weren't happy and I wasn't happy and the management weren't happy. And, um, and it was all just, it was a bit, it was difficult, right? And I think eventually we kind of got it all back together. Um, and we got um, a new guy came in with the new investors and we started, you know, started growing again. Um, but yeah, getting that senior management team right is, is hard work. So how do you um, adapt to work in that environment? It, obviously, um, it was a difficult time and it didn't work out. Uh, but during that period of time where um, in the hierarchy, somebody, you know, the, the, somebody's in running what effectively is, started, is your business um, and you have to be in a position where you acknowledge that person's in charge <clears throat> of your business. How do you put yourself in the mindset to work in that environment? So uh, we talked earlier, I've always been happy to cannibalise something and rebuild it. So I don't have a problem, and never had a problem, um, with saying, yeah, because obviously I genuinely, I hired these people, I appointed them into the roles, they're good people, I put time and energy into finding that, I agree with the strategy. I didn't really have a problem with the fact that the gentleman was now the CEO. Um, so it was it was kind of more later um, when then things the, the strategy diverged really I suppose that I then had a problem with it and I mean I, apparently it was quite difficult to deal with at that point um, and I wasn't very happy about the whole thing um, so but I do remember um, I, I can't remember Barry I had a really great ops director called Barry um, who's long standing and he or someone else you know must have told me that when I walked into the office I had to kind of walk tall and smile and be the leader that I should be because if I wasn't then that would affect everyone in the company and whatever personal problem I had um you know that was not something that I was was was, was not for consumption in the office right um yeah we were we had customers to deal with and staff to look after and big business at that point so so yeah so I kind of had to leave it outside really um which is but yeah apparently I was a bit grumpy <laughs> uh the but um the business continued to grow and evolve, and the um, now I, um, I don't recall sort of the time frames in this, but moved into mobile, or and you exiting Gradwell, or things have happened around that period of time. Um, walk us up to that point. Yeah, so um, the, we're recording this on the twenty second, and apparently we're now three years and two days um, after the original COVID lockdown um so but the covid lockdown for me was was uh a as a country we had to deal with the covid lockdown but b um about three weeks before that i had just left gradwell um as the business so i was kind of kicking around at home wondering what to do um not really sure about you know my life because i just 
spent 22 years in this doing one thing very intensively and now I had nothing to do and I wasn't allowed to go outside um so it was it was it was very weird but um to take you through the journey so yeah so um the second firm Chilton came in at that point they took a majority stake in the company um which was great as you say we kind of reset the management team got the business growing again um got things on the straight and now after a couple of years I think I think it was about three years of working with Chilton um and yeah, things sort of settling into place. Eventually we all agreed that it's time for me to go and do something else now. And um, so, yeah, so I wasn't, so then I found myself sat at home uh, in COVID, but I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Uh, I'm not very good at sitting around at home doing nothing. And so the one thing that we'd never got working in the gradual business, because that was all about fixed line, was mobile. The irony of a business where I sold phones that sat on people's desks was that I didn't sit behind my desk very much. I always made phone calls on my mobile. So I thought I want to try and crack the mobile thing again. I'd had a few goes before, but never really done it. So, and I got lucky. I, um, yeah, I talked about being naturally curious. So I love researching things and annoying people and asking them questions. So I rang up all the people I knew, um, had lots of video calls. We were all happy sitting at home having video calls, lots of market research. I went back to one guy who I'd tried to work with before and said, um, you've got an MVNO and, uh, yeah, can I, I kind of wanted a job really, I suppose. And he said, oh, well, I've had enough of my MBO. I'm going to sell that business or close it down or something. It's not making any money. So I said, oh, don't do that, Clive. Um, give it to me. Give me the MBO. And so, yeah, I think March or the 1st of April of, uh, of lockdown, I bought this kind of tiny MBO for a small amount of money and then spent the rest of the next year fixing it, basically, called IQ Mobile, um, fixing it, growing the customers and pivoted to mobile. The rolling backs for a moment uh before sort of coming back onto what the innovation in mobile is it can't be easy um because you named your business after your own name um sort of stepping down from that um an example i think of is bannantine he's sort of like you know bannantine gyms he's like i'll put my name to this uh you put your name to it um and effectively it's sold on and you know somebody else is running that and i believe you're still you know you're still a shareholder and sort of involved in the business but the um not going there every day um is that um is that a fond memory or is it something that's you know feels a little bit sad i think it's yeah um several people told me i shouldn't use my name to start my next company which i have not done um and I've often wondered, as you say, what does Lord Sainsbury feel? But um, uh, I think, yeah, it is a bit sad. I mean, there's an agreement in place, right? If they ever stop using the name, I get it back, particularly the domain name. Um, but it's fair to say that when I was 19, I started this company. I didn't really think about that. Um, you know, I called it Gradwell because that's what I was called. Um, and why wouldn't I? Um, so, and they're a good business. So I'm quite happy that, you know, they, they live up to the high standards. Um of the name but um but equally you know there's a building in the central bath with my name on it and a car parking space um and my daughter doesn't really understand why i'm not allowed to park there anymore um so i think it is you know it's, it's it swings and roundabouts but um yeah luckily the gravel business has carried on growing and it's a good business so um so yes yeah, so there's no disagreement between us about the use of the name but i think yeah, probably, um, because not all of us get to be either Saints Muse or Ballantines. Um, probably it's something that, 
uh, entrepreneurs should avoid doing is using their own name because the journey is not forever um, and therefore there will always be a change at some point. But there is a part of it that you've just said the business is growing and it's doing well and you know delivering a good product, good service and you know holding up high standards. Um, it's a legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm usually proud of the number of people that we employed and have grown. Actually, what's really cool is seeing the people where they are now in their jobs and things, you know, where they kind of, they might well have been, you know, junior software developers and grammar and stuff, but now they're senior product managers in big companies and things like that. So lots of people um, have done that. And also lots of customers have gone on to do much better things than I have done. Um, so, you know, there was... 30,000 customers I regret I can't remember all the names but um but I do keep finding people that were original customers and now they're doing x and um it's really cool um see it made a big difference and something that you wanted to get into being mobile um and being the kind of um forward thinker that you are and sort of looking for um unique solutions and shaking things up um what are you doing within mobile then what what are you shaking up so the big question is really uh how do you connect the mobile and make it part of the original business phone system so that in this new world where we are all out and about and we don't stand still um you kind of want to have that seamless telephony on the mobile phone and part of the sim card um and the other thing is that people want uh more coverage there's no shortage of people in this country that like better coverage so we're building 5g networks as well and hopefully eventually we can get the two things to gel together you know so that in your farm or your industrial site or whatever you're doing um you can build your own mobile network and your own community and then you can obviously have your sim card and you can connect those um connect those different things together so yeah so we have this we have this 5g mobile network business called telet um and then we have the sim cards and stuff so hopefully we can get to a situation where people can have their own their own mobile coverage um and a, and their phone will be also then connected to their business so that regardless of how they are out and about they kind of can carry on receiving those phone calls and orders and processing and all the rest of it from their customers so if i um so we're on a uh, industrial estate here that's right out in the countryside <clears throat> it's an ex-farm that in fact i think the landlord still does do some farming but a lot of the old buildings here have been converted into offices the i'm picturing in my head if i'm interpreting where you're, you're taking this is there is effectively a mobile receiver transmitter i don't know the industry so excuse my ignorance but a um, a big aerial <laughs> or an aerial you know something can well i think that so yeah so the interesting thing is that you don't have enough you won't you probably there will be a big tower somewhere nearby right but there are not enough big towers and as a nation we don't want more big towers because they're ugly and they you know and the other problem with the uk is that big towers tend to beam the coverage over the top of a lot of things and we have quite undulating countryside um so lots of people end up in dips or as you say in farms so they don't have good quality coverage. And then the problem that your farmer will have is that um, he might want to upgrade to a new self-driving combine harvester, but uh, what he will find is the combine harvester needs to be connected and he'll get to, you know, the coverage is patchy. So he'll set off fine and then he'll get halfway down the field and he'll lose signal. And then what happens to the combine harvester, right? It can't you know, communicate back to the mothership. So the farmer needs guaranteed coverage across his field and he needs to know that it's exactly in the right place. The people in the industrial site um, you know, with the lovely brick walls and all the rest of it, they want some sort of Wi-Fi-like um, 
you know, little small cells to go into the building to give them coverage in all the places they want coverage. And then we also need to cover the forecourt and you know, all the other bits and pieces in the shop. So, and you can't ring up the big four mobile operators today and buy mobile coverage like that. Um, there's some solutions for five-star hotels and stadiums and things, but not for small business. So effectively here, we would literally have a, I'm thinking like mobile phone. I walk in, I'm on Vodafone, for example. So the there is no coverage. You want Vodafone signal inside? <clears throat> yeah. Well, d- d- um, to be honest, I don't care who the signal is. I just want to be able to make and receive a phone call. Um, so we pull into this estate uh, and literally as we're coming down into the estate, we lose our road lose the Vodafone signal. Um, am I, so what you're looking at is a solution where you provide where you come into this estate and then I have a signal and continue to use my phone within this estate here as with anybody else. To, um, uh, and then when I drive off and back, I'm back on the main network. Am I picking that up correctly? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, today the big four operators would say, well, the solution for this is Wi-Fi calling. But um, but you, it's hard to have pervasive Wi-Fi. Um, it's, it's, you know, you, in buildings, you can just about manage it now. But if you're dealing with the outside use cases, then that's quite difficult. So over big areas. So, yeah, so definitely it's about allowing you to deploy your own small mobile network because your particular use case in your you know, industrial state is not big enough to warrant a massive investment from all four operators. OK, but it is important for you and you want to, you know, you can put up a small investment to, to solve your problem. So sidetracking slightly, Vodafone, if you're watching this podcast, the um, Peter here has a solution and O2 and everybody else that can piggyback on. Is that where you, you're sort of, you're taking your business? Yeah, we're working towards, a, exactly, so that we call it neutral host. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, you know, the, some of the operators are more enthusiastic than others, but we'd obviously love to work with all of them. That's, that sounds pretty cool, like that. The, uh, you've, uh, you've had quite a journey. Um, you've obviously uh, had great inspiration from your parents, great work ethic that set you on a really good path. Um, and then you've gone through different challenges, you know, pain, growing pains within your business, whether it's bringing management team in or, you know, investors in, raising finance and constantly um, innovating uh, and looking at how to grow the business. Uh, I, the fascinating story, uh, what I'd like to do, if we, uh, if we sort of move to sort of wind up here, there's a number of, out of everything you've been through, what would be the sort of big takeaways that you would give to somebody at the start of that journey, the, the younger version of yourself to be aware of or you know, mistakes not to make perhaps uh, as they've sort of started off? Yeah, so there's two things that I, I was involved in um, a thing called the Executive Foundation, which kind of was, uh, you know, like CEO mentoring and taught me a lot. It was my MBA, um, but the practical one. Um, and the guy there, Mike, showed me, we we're having a conversation about people and the team and how it grew. And he, he did show me a thing, which was the, the, um, the stages of a company as a bell shaped curve. And as you grew up, it's this, you can Google, I think it's called PAEI. So, um, <clears throat> and it's the different stages. And so when you get to five people, you have the company dynamic, right? There's 10 people, the company's dynamic would be like this, 50, 100, 300 and so on. And, um, and that was quite helpful because actually it was quite accurate and I thought, and I've seen it, it works for lots of different companies. Um, and it, knowing what it will be like at the next hurdle 
was quite good because you could do that and then you think oh actually it's like this and I've got a plan and I could be a bit more prepared for the different phases of company growth and team dynamics and all that stuff so that was good and the other one he showed me was the reservoir of goodwill which was an actual picture of a reservoir which is all the things the management team pouring at the top um and then all the reasons why employees and all the goodwill leaks out at the bottom um and of course you know managers never fix the problems that the employees dealing with do we so um knowing visually what the how to keep the reservoir full was quite important and then i think the the economic thing uh, and the money thing would be to try and grow the business organically um but to make sure you have a cash flow positive business um so that you don't end up needing kind of equity and equity partners um and probably i think it's my reflection is that it would have been okay to take a little bit longer um and uh you know and need less cash than it would be to try and do it you know too quickly so i think the more you can do with banks um and with cash you know positive cash flow um and so i'm not adverse now this time around to charging customers up front for longer and bigger setup fees and the rest of it um because yeah the more self-sustaining you can make your business then as the entrepreneur the more you're in control of it and the longer the longer you can keep your personal journey going right so that's the thing you need to do is not to lose control too quickly I think that last one is why so often everybody harps the same hymn sheet in uh, um, cash is king. And it's it doesn't matter how profitable the business looks on paper. As soon as cash runs out, the business is gone. Uh, it's quite a, there's a reason that everybody refers back to, you know, looking after the cash flow. Uh, the now the name of the podcast is Drive. Uh, and one of the sort of big things I'd always love to ask as well is you've built, grown, exited, come out of a business and now you're starting something else again. You know, you're starting at the, like almost at the ground level again, um, which, you know, some would say is a little bit psychotic. You know, why on earth would you put yourself through that again? Uh, so what is your drive? Why do you do it? Well, um there's paying the bills of course um and keeping the children going with their baked beans and things like that but um i also yeah i i mean i'm not very good at sitting still so i love and i like solving problems for people and making those things better i like helping people um so i think it's and i like technology right i'm you know, sat here looking at lots of technology so i can't help myself from sort of fiddling with technology and going well how could we apply this differently or better and that's i think and if you can do that and you can create something out of it, which then creates jobs and employment and keeps customers happy, I think that's that's like really worthwhile. So that's sort of what I really like doing. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to pry on that a little bit more because you could argue you could get a job at Google and do the same sort of thing. So uh, what motivates you to do it yourself? Yeah, I think that's then an issue about freedom um, and control. And I don't, want to be a i don't particularly like other people telling me what i should do um uh, particularly in the workspace it's kind of i like to be creative and i like to be able to define the path and, um, and i like to be accountable for the results not the hours of the day um so that's yeah all of those things kind of mix up together right to say well actually i'm gonna do it myself um and and i when I started the original gravel business, it was it was there was no risk involved. I was a student. I didn't have yeah, you know, didn't need much money. I didn't have much money, and yeah. Um, this time round, obviously, I've got mortgage and family now. So 
so it's kind of it has been more of a commitment but equally we've gone out and we've kind of got some better backers and things so so again the risk has been managed um and and therefore i think it's about i would never encourage anyone to kind of jump completely off the cliff and into their start a company but um yeah i I know for me getting a job at google was not the right thing to do so um so i've kind of tried to start companies and create my own space in in a managed way no, that's fantastic. And yeah, again, just want to, I've, I've been aware of Gradwell. I've been aware of yourself um, right back from my very first business in the 90s. We're, we're in a similar space. And I did look at what you was doing in Aurora and think, how's he doing that? I know that stuff. <clears throat> uh, and the, you are somebody I've um, observed from afar, if I may. So again, um, it's been great hearing your story. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast and um, I wish you every success in your new venture. Thank you. And I think it's really important to stress that all entrepreneurs are good at being swans. So they're graceful on the top and then it's like up to panic underneath. But as long as you can deliver and look like a swan, then that's all that matters. So it's been really good chatting to you, Richard. Thank you. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, please remember to hit follow on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It really helps the algorithm and push this podcast up through the rankings and also leave some feedback. I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Drive. Until next time, this is Drive, the small business podcast from UKBF.